Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Professor Leighton Vaughan-Williams. Leighton, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Professor Leighton Vaughan-Williams. Leighton, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. So Leighton, you're uh, pretty well known in the, the area of gambling, so why don't you start with your background and history in this space? Okay. Um, I'm Professor of Economics and Finance, but in 1995 I set up the Betting Research Unit, um, and that's now at Nottingham Business School. Uh, there was no such thing in the UK, so um, there was a gap in the market there. The um, National Lottery had just been introduced, and um, when we set that up, it, it, it acted as a shop window for people who were looking for consultancy or research into betting, gaming, um, gambling generally. So what was it like back in 1995 when you started that betting research unit? Was it very much yourself and maybe grabbing together some friends or colleagues that could uh, help you with getting stuck into some consultancy or research? Yeah, well, well, basically I set it up by myself to some extent. Um, and then when I was at the conf- going to conferences um, which looked at gambling and so forth, um, people were questioning, asking me about the betting research unit. And then that led a few um, a couple of years later, to um, being asked to tender for a big contract for HM Customs and Excise, as it was in those days, um, to discuss um, the options for taxing betting in the UK. Because what had happened was in the late 1990s, um, bet bookmakers started to move offshore um, to Gibraltar, Alderney, and then they didn't have to pay tax. So people would place bets offshore with these betting companies rather than onshore. And this created a problem for government and its tax revenue. So they asked me to tender. I won the tender. And then um, I proposed a big radical change to the taxation of betting in the UK, which was taken up by the government and introduced in 2001. And everything has changed since. I want to spend some time on that in a minute. But before we get to that, Take us through, I guess, in the late 90s, before that moment uh, when you won the tender, what were you researching? What were the questions you were getting? Was it very basic and elementary compared to what we know now or how it evolved in the, I guess, next 20 years? Well, I wasn't just, I was looking at um, betting um, 
more generally is the information efficiency in in betting markets, whether they the markets were efficient, whether it's possible to beat the market, whether prices were predictable, um, whether there are any betting systems. And um, in 97, I published a paper in the Economic Journal, which is a journal of the Royal Economic Society that was called Why is a favorite long shot bias in British racetrack betting markets? And um, we, uh, so that's the sort of thing I was looking at at that point. Um, I've continued to look at information efficiency in betting markets. And my um, book, um, Information Efficiency in Financial and Betting Markets by Cambridge University Press, was published in 2005. And so I've done a lot on that. Um, but I've also done quite a lot of work for government in the taxation um, and regulation of betting and gaming. So take us back to that time when you wrote the book. What were the markets like back then? What were the, I guess, efficiencies and maybe compare them to what we know today? Well, the big bias, which which was first published in 1949, as most people know, is the favorite long shot bias. That in horse racing, it was first established that if you bet on favorites, you would lose a lot less than if you bet on long shots. And the more of a favorite they were, the more the less you would lose or even possibly win just by doing it blanket um and this was something which existed not across nearly every sport that was looked at um there were some exceptions like the hong kong um betting where the the, 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 the it seemed to be absent but most places this long shot bias existed the only real problem was that that is known as a sort of a weak form inefficiency um, because you could use a strategy which you, where you would win a different amount by using one strategy, betting favorites, than another betting long shots. The problem was it wasn't really an inefficiency in a wider sense because you couldn't actually exploit it um, to actually make a profit. It would just reduce your loss. And so... So it's a sort of inefficiency, but not in a bigger sense. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So at that time, were you able to access some of the information available then and people like Ed Thorpe or Claude Shannon and what they were doing or others in the industry, or was it rather sort of closed into your jurisdiction or country? Well, data is always a problem. <laughs> and the more data you've got, the, the, um, the better you can research and the bigger chance you have of actually exploiting inefficiencies in the market. And people like um, Bill Benter um, got a lot of data and a lot of expert modeling based on that data. And that's how he and his syndicate made the fortune um, and others since. Um, I had access to historical data um, in, in doing my analysis um, on, the, on, the, on various things but um, not that's not enough data to be able to operationalize it in any sense that would create a systematic profit over time. So take us back to the tender process you mentioned earlier, and I guess it was around the year 2000. What were the main problems facing the industry? And I know you touched on the offshore component. Was that the sole reason or motivation to try and reshape the taxation of the industry? 
Well, that that was the key thing. Um, there'd there'd been a betting tax introduced into the UK in 1926 by uh, Winston Churchill, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. He he famously said in the House of Commons, "I'm not looking for trouble. I'm looking for revenue." But um, he got a lot of trouble from his tax and very little revenue. And in 1930, that um, tax was abolished. It was brought back in a little bit in 1947 on the sort of pari or what we call the tote, on, on uh, um, greyhound bets and on the football pools, but not, not systematically. But then in 1960, um, betting shops were legalized in the UK. And in 1966, betting tax was reintroduced at 2.5% on turnover. And by 2000, that was about 6.75%. But um, the problem was um, Victor Chandler and others started to move offshore and offered bets um, to UK um, bettors without any tax. They, they charged a small administration fee, but it was much lower than the tax, um, the deduction you would pay if you bet in a betting shop. And so obviously... Why would anyone bet in a, in a UK betting shop when they could just pick up a phone and bet much more cheaply elsewhere? Well, people did, but but it was starting to go away. So the people so people were wising up, um, and the government saw that this was going to lead to uh, the uh, a huge fall in the revenue they would get from the tax on betting, and so they commissioned outside experts. Um, they asked for tender for that to to advise them on what to do. How do we address this? Um, I put in a tender. Um, others did as well. I won that tender. And um, I suggested to them that they abolish the betting tax altogether as it was constituted, which was a, which was a tax on turnover. In other words, on stakes, abolish that and replace it with a tax on gross profit. That is how much the bookmaker won off the um, better, how much they took minus, how much they paid back. Uh, I have a tax on that. And I said, so we want to just change the tax structure altogether. HM Customs and Excess were reluctant to, to do that because you know everyone gets anchored to their way of thinking. But I was suggesting a totally new way of thinking. And fortunately for the for the betting industry, the government took my advice and um, introduced the gross profits tax in um, in 2001 at 15%, um, which was basically a halving of the tax, the the effective rate of tax on betting. But the, the point was, the bookmakers agreed to come back on shore, at least the large bookmakers. And they also agreed that they wouldn't pass any of the tax on to the betting public. The consequence was that, with, that in 2000 to 2001, the, um, the, the, the turnover of betting in, in bookmakers was 7 billion. By 2003 to four, it was 32 billion pounds. Um, so basically, um, what we had, what I had suggested was, you want to tax gross profits, not turnover. You want to tax price, not quantity, because by doing that, you will get price falling, margin falling, but also you will get quantity turnover um, increasing, and that's exactly what happened. And um, in 2003, the government, um, HM Customs had looked at it again, and they said. Um, Yes, this has worked. This has worked. 
and they and by then they were starting to roll it out for bingo football pools and eventually all forms of gambling other than some gaming machines the gaming machines were subject to this gross profits tax in 2013 all gambling machines also um, were taxed in the same way. So I completed the whole circle and now um, gambling in the UK is, is taxed on gross profit and other countries have followed suit. Um, Singapore, the first one to do so, um, 2005, Kenya last year, Sweden, Denmark, um, Italy, sorry, um, uh, yeah, Denmark, Greece, Spain, Italy, and next year, the Victorian government in Australia are introducing a gross profits tax um, on gambling themselves. And also, it'll be on a point of consumption basis. Amazing. There's a lot to unpack there. I want to go back to the the days of a turnover tax. Do you know why, and it's easy for us now looking back based on obviously your research and the consequential changes going from 7 to $32 billion or whatever you just mentioned. What was the rationale, do you remember, or what was the thought process behind turnover tax? Well, it, 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 they just thought like that. They didn't think of any alternative. Um, as I say, in 1926, Winston Churchill introduced this turnover tax, the tax on stakes. It seemed an obvious thing to do. When someone places a bet, you, 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 you charge them a tax on, on how much they bet, and then that goes to the um, revenue collection authorities. But economics, um, if, if you looked at the economics of this, it, ma- it made little sense that to, to be taxing quantity. We really need to tax price. That will reduce price. It will reduce margins. Um, and that will mean that where you've got it makes the it makes the operator much more competitive internationally it reduces prices to the consumer um and it also boosts turnover um it, it's just the, the theory worked but the theory they never actually employed economists to look at it so when they employed me to look at it as an eco- as an economist it seemed to me so strange that they were using a a method of taxation which made no sense in an economic to an economist, and when I suggested it, they just didn't really want to run with it. But but fortunately, the government ultimately decided they were convinced by my report, and the consequence um, I think has been a good one, and it's been picked up internationally. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you probably implemented a multi-factor analysis, not just. Let's take a little bit off the yeah. top from each bet. And you went further and said, okay, what will happen if we do that? What will happen in the alternative? And it seems like you've been on the right side of, of history on that one. Well, we modeled it, you see. We, we had the theory behind us. Um, it was, you, you, know, we looked, you know, the basic economic theory, ad valorem taxes versus commodity taxes and so on. We had the theory, but we needed to do the modeling to work out what would the effect be if you were going to um, put it at certain levels. And we decided 15% was about right. It's politically right because the, um, it, it, it was a sort of level at which the bookmakers would repatriate the operations where they wouldn't pass anything on. But also it made sense. In, in the, uh, the numbers we modeled, the empirics that we modeled, actually turned out to be dead on, um, which was a surprise to us because however good your model is, it doesn't normally get it that accurate. But we were we knew it would work in principle and pretty close, but it actually worked dead on. And um and so um 
in 2005, the National Audit Office were called in to look at it, and they said it had been a huge success, even though when we first implemented it, the tax revenue to the government halved from about £450 million a year to about £220 million a year. But as, as um, gross profit increased over time and turnover increased over time, within about three years, the, the government is actually taking more tax than they were beforehand. Whereas the alternative, as the National Audit Office pointed out, would have been that the tax take would have just fallen and fallen and fallen, as all the bets that were made in the UK would have been pushed offshore. So why, why did it fall in the first year? What was the reason? It sounds like if you're implementing a a more favourable taxation structure, it might kick off straight away. What was the delay? Be- because it wasn't revenue equivalent. Um, that the uh, that the, the turnover tax was 6.75%. Now, the, the revenue equivalent tax in the gross profits terms w- would be about 30% or 27% to be, I think it's 27 to 28%. So, but we, but 27 to 28%, um, it wasn't what we recommended. We recommended 15% because that would repatriate the, the operators. It would mean that there'd be nothing passed on to the consumer. And we, we calculated within three or four years with the increase in gross profit that we, would, that we projected, then they would be getting more tax than they were in the first place. But as I said, the initial thing was to cut it in half because it wasn't revenue equivalent. 15% was about half, in gross profits terms, it's about half what the turnover tax had been taken at 6.75%. I see. So as the, so basically the, the pie was the same size and it was a much lower tax in the beginning, but as the pie grew and the, the lower taxation rate caught up, it eventually eclipsed it and now it's clearly overtaking it. That's exactly right, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned... It sounds like the bookmakers agreed to come back and agreed not to pass on that tax, the 15% uh, gross profit tax to the public. How did that play out? How did that work? It it worked perfectly for a while. Um, um, (laughs) And they still don't don't pass pass anything on to the consumer. So that bit has, has continued. But in 2009, William Hill decided, oh, We've had enough of this business of coming back onshore. We'll go offshore, you know, um, even though there's a gentleman's agreement that they would have come onshore when we when we agreed to put it at 15 percent. Um, but by then, you know, things had moved on. They, they'd assumed that that 15 percent was, was written, in, in, you know, forever, that that the gross profits tax was there forever. So they, why, why should they now stay here? Let's go offshore. And that's what they started to do. And then Ladbrokes followed suit, others followed suit. And now this was, um, this is a problem for government's tax revenue because if, if, if they've gone offshore, we, we, then we're not getting the tax revenue. So th- when the new, new government came in, the, in, in 2010, they tried to reinvent the wheel and bring back in the turnover tax to try and get money back. But I was called in and, and, um, and I explained how that wasn't a very good idea. But a better idea would be a point of consumption tax. A point of consumption tax, um, meaning that you, 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 you tax the, the better where they are placed rather than where the operator is. And this was um, introduced um, in, in 2014. And is, and is and is still in place now. So that 
So the, the, so, so there's been two big changes. One is the introduction of the gross profits tax in 2001. That was, and then that was completed with the machine games duty, which was a gross profits tax on gambling machines in 2013, introduced in February 2013. And then in 2014, the new point of consumption, or sometimes called place of consumption tax, was introduced so that the operator could not avoid paying tax to the government by moving offshore. So I want to get to that in a minute. Back to passing on the the taxation to the public. Can't the bookmakers simply have worse odds, let's say? And I know a lot of people listening probably have seen 140% markets, 160% markets, or even higher in mm-hmm. horse racing, greyhounds, sports. Even yeah, isn't that mm-hmm. the same as is? Isn't that the same as passing on the tax to the the consumer anyway? Well, um, it, it depends how competitive the market is. You know, the, the online market is very competitive, and where there's low margins, of course, that um, which will be in a very competitive market, the bookmakers. Um, don't have to pay very much. Um, um, that, 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 that's, uh, that's how it works. That's one of the advantages. If they're making a big profit, then they pay more tax. Um, but you've also got, apart from the online competitiveness, you, um, where people can, you know, and with the advent of odds checker and people like that and, and things like that. And also, of course, the rapid growth in the betting exchanges. And that was another thing which the gross profits tax did that the gross profits tax was very, very good for, for, for the growth of betting exchanges, whereas the turnover tax was very bad for, for betting exchanges. So, the, so betting exchanges have a lot to thank the, the gross profits tax for. So in a sense, the gross profits tax also made the market itself more competitive. By the way, the very strange thing was when I was doing this um, tax work in 2000, HM Customs Access said to me, well, Look at the taxation of bookmakers and and spread betting companies, which we did. Um, uh, 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 but and we have, we advise a slightly different tax for spread betting. But whatever you do, don't bother to look at exchanges. They said. I said, really? Why not? And they said to me, because there'll never be anything. <laughs> there'll never be anything. So wow. don't bother. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, so I didn't put that in my report. Then they brought in their own tax without consulting me, um, which they p- patched in at the last minute, which was on the net aggregated profits of the layers, which was a weird tax, wasn't really bringing in any money. And so they called me back in in 2003 and said, well, this, the tax we did on exchanges, but we've changed our mind now. We think exchanges are going to be something. Can you redo your tax work for exchanges? Well, I did. I, I did my report. But basically, I said, you know, tax the um, exchanges on their gross profits, the same as the bookmakers. And what are the gross profits of exchanges? The gross profits of exchanges are um, the commission that they earn. And so th- that's what they taxed. And that's continued to be the system that's been in place. But it's the gross profits tax which allowed betting exchanges to take off in the way they did. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. When you were doing your analysis on the exchanges and the peer-to-peer uh, betting that was taking place, did you treat the, the, the punters who were active on those exchanges as essentially a bookmaker, as they can, so they can lay... Um, they can lay on that exchange, or were you treating them 
simply as you know two punters coming together in a peer-to-peer relationship how did you think about it from a how did you contextualize the relationship between those coming together on an exchange well, well, the, the HM Customs Nexus, because they didn't ask me in 2001, they, they came up with this tax on the so-called net aggregated profits of the layers, which was, a, as I say, a strange concept, uh, but it had a certain um, logic to it, I suppose. Um, but it, it didn't really work. And um, so when they asked me, I, I thought, well, I like to think simple, you know, if I don't, if it, why, why make it overcomplicated, you know, Occam's razor, when a simple solution is very clear. And my solution was, how much is the betting exchange making off its traders? And that is the commission on the winning bets, which ranges differently for different turnover levels. But um, so I said, we'll tax them at 15%, the same as bookmakers, on the commission they earn from their from the winning bets. So I wasn't distinguishing between layers and backers. I was just basically doing it on the basis of how much commission was earned. So take us through the point of consumption tax now. Has that been a success in the early few years? What are some of the challenges to making sure it's sustainable longer term? Well, I think it just does itself. I mean, in in a sense, it's been implemented. It's it's um, um, it's working, um, and the, the proof is in the pudding that that Victoria um, have now decided that they are going to introduce um, a point of consumption tax themselves from February two thousand and nineteen, um, and um, also and that'll be on a gross profits basis. So they've obviously looked at the UK experience. And then said, "Oh, we like it. We will adopt the same thing." So I think that the evidence is there. So, what about just generally in the industry? What what else can be done from a regulatory standpoint, taxation standpoint, um, to make sure it's healthy moving forward? And I know a lot of industries like greyhounds and even uh, horse racing has seen either, you know, a steadiness or even a decline uh, in terms of growth. What would you suggest yeah. in terms of, uh, or have you thought about what could be possible moving forward to help uh, the health of these different markets and industries? Well, well what, what has happened um, recently, um, there was the announcement only a few weeks ago, um, which I was interviewed on Radio 4 about, which was the um, reduction in the maximum stake on betting machines in, in um, bookmakers known as um, B2 machines or fixed odds betting terminals um, and uh, the, the, the maximum stake was £100 and then they, there was a lot of lobbying from outside groups and regardless of evidence-based um, policy reasoning, they decided to cut the maximum stake right down to £2. Now this pretty much makes them ineffective um, as a cash um, revenue uh, generator. Um, and so as a result of that, there'll be a huge loss in tax for the government from, from this part of the bookmakers operation. So the government has to make up that tax. Um, they were going to, they are going to increase online tax, tax on online betting. Um, and, uh, we'll see how that goes, but that, that's not the recommendation that I, that I gave. They've gone and done that 
both of those policies on their own. So do you ever advise or I'm sure you speak to at least some of the uh, industries, whether it's, you know, CEOs or, or whatever it might be of, of horse racing or greyhounds or harness racing yeah. or, or even other aspects, what are some of the things that yeah. they could take on board from some of your research and some of the evidence-based, I guess, findings and what we've learned over the course of the last sort of 30 years? Well, basically, we are in a, um, in a very competitive industry and there's a lot of mergers going on. Um, you know, like Paddy Power used to be at loggerheads with Betfair. Now they're sort of merged into one Ladbrokes car. Um, it, 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 it's this sort of merging of the big bookmaking companies. Um, the big challenge, though, is is the technology challenge. Um, the future is is clearly online to to a large extent, and how they are able to meet that challenge, um, and what sort of technology they're going to um, put in place in order to to, to maximize the revenue growth in that area, I think is the challenge that really faces them at the moment. And I think they're aware of that. So what excites you about this area and what's coming next? Obviously, you know, the U.S. is opening up. Obviously, the changes in Australia and in, in Victoria already mentioned. You know, yeah. your, your jurisdictions that you're familiar with, you mentioned some of the, the other jurisdictions in Europe that have had some positive changes. What What's the next sort of step or stage? Are we in a point of consumption era we're moving towards online we're figuring out technology how to provide you know the industry more information more data more real time and, and live information what from your perspective and your angle on this what's an area that you're going to be looking into or we should be thinking about well uh, uh, it's a lot of uh, there's a lot bigger turnover now in in real time um in one in betting and this is a big, uh, a, a big thing for the future. Um, how are they going to attract people to place bets um, in real in real time uh, compared to what they're doing now? That's a big, big growth area. Um, that's that's clearly the case. Um, but but another bit of research I'm doing is into the um, optimal taxation of of gambling machines wherever they are. And the work that I'm, I'm, I'm doing at the moment, jointly with um, researchers in, in the United States, is looking at gross profits tax on gambling machines generally throughout the US, UK, throughout the world. And the, uh, the idea, based on what's happened since they introduced the machine games duty in 2013, our theoretical projection, our theoretical framework and our empirical analysis so far has shown it's been a success and that the gross profits tax can be applied to gambling machines um, internationally. Um, but that would again go against the conventional wisdom. There's a lot, conventional wisdom tends to drive um, tax policy, regulatory policy, um, business policy. And if you can get outside of that, if you can, if you can think you know, outside the box, like, like I did in, in 2000 and then think t totally differently about how you might um, move forward. I think that's what, what, what policymakers and what um, business people in this space need to do. How much is it unique to a certain jurisdiction? Or if we invented a global point of consumption tax for every jurisdiction all yeah. over the world, 
would that work to a meaningful or a successful extent or do we need to factor in cultural legacy and other issues that are local? Yeah, um, as far as the point of consumption, I think the gross profits tax is a pretty universal idea if people could take on board. Um, the point of consumption tax, um, I think that needs to be looked at um, on a case-by-case basis. Certainly in the case of the UK, it was uh, it, it, it was the sort of thing they needed to do if they were going to maintain their, their um, tax revenue base, given the fact that that Britain operators were going offshore. Um, different countries have different um, regulatory um, systems. Some have bookmakers, a lot of them don't. A lot of them is, is probably mutual only. And so I think you need to look at it on a, on a jurisdictional basis. So before I let you go, I want to talk about your site, LeightonVW.com. I've, I've spent some time on there. It's, yeah. it's pretty fun uh, going into the different areas and topics from... <laughs> You know, game theory to, to betting research, yeah. there's economics, there's even politics, and um, there's a lot of fun reading for those interested in this area. What What's your site going to contain in the next few months and years, or what are some areas you're looking into at the moment? Well, um, whenever, some, whenever something... Um, it comes up which I, which which I find interesting in 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 terms of betting or or probability generally um I tend to at that moment decide to look deeply into it and then try and simplify it and put it on my blog. It needs to be interesting to me and and I think therefore it's more likely to be interesting to other people as well um and I like to look at things which in probability terms which are counterintuitive things which you would not um obviously think to be the case you know the famous monty hall problem where should you switch boxes every that's become quite well known and it's counterintuitive but there's lots of such counterintuitive things in betting in probability and i'm really interested in that and that's the sort of thing that i'll be exploring further um in my blog com. yeah I, I suggest those who are interested in those type of things to go and check it out Leighton, where can people find you? Is it best to, to go on the blog and, and send you an email if they've got questions? Or what, what about on Twitter? Yeah, um, but I, I am on Twitter, but, but, but I, I play around a bit on that. You know, it, 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 lots of stuff on it isn't really very serious. There's this, um, I, I, a lot of people don't treat Twitter seriously, neither do I really. It's a bit of fun for me. But um, the, uh, but the blog is, is more serious. It's more academic. And if people read that, if they want to email me or whatever, um, then please do so. Uh, you know, direct message me. You can do that. Um, that's fine. Um, but as I say, I, I use Twitter for a bit of fun. But sometimes I post some of my blogs on there as well. So, uh, so t- t- take it, take the Twitter stuff with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Just finally, <laughs> what else do you read or consume, or what sites or? Or where do you get your ideas and information from when you're uh, playing around on the internet these days? Well, um, I, I like um, 538.com. Um, there's a lot of stuff on there, which is very, very interesting in terms of sport and betting and prediction markets. Because I do a lot of work in prediction markets, um, in political betting, in um, in, in, in uh, 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 that's the sort of thing which that's a space that I'm in at the moment, um, and so 
538.com is very good on that. I tend to look at places which give me lots of data, like tennisabstract.com, and wherever I can get data from and some nice analysis, I will go to those things. But basically, if I could only, if I could only choose one thing, you know, I like to say, if, you had, if you're on a dust island and you could only have one site, then in, 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 in this space, it would be 538.com. Great. I, I very much appreciate your time. It's a little different tack to, to the normal betting and bookmaking. There's a lot of fun talking about this type of thing on a, on a regulatory level. So thanks for coming on to, to have a chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. 